0: Alright, what's going on, people? It's me. I'm back. It's just me today. Or, well, not entirely, as you guys can see. I have yeah, another I'm co-host good. today. What's going on, Jim Bob? Good to have you back, dude. Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. good, yeah. It's funny because I had this bit planned with Chris where it's like the, the last time that we were on, well, the three of us were on, uh, it's funny because we were going to do, it was more of like just a talk about Studio Ghibli in general, but then it kind of, wasn't that it kind of ended up turning into a conversation about spirited away arguably their most popular movie so i was just funny how that turned out but that's not
1: the case as is today okay not a problem so um so princess mononoke today
0: yeah we're covering princess mononoke which i don't know what your thoughts are on this movie. I mean, we'll, we're obviously going to get into that. But right. I, I mean, I've, I've never watched this movie before. And I already kind of have a bias towards movies that came out the year that I was born, which is 97, obviously, which is not a great year for movies, to say the least. I'm just going to get that right off the bat. Like, we, you got a few gems that year because that's the year you got Boogie Nights that year. You got Goodwill Hunting. You got LA Confidential, Men in Black, um, Con Air. Jackie Brown, Hercules, few good ones, but for the most part, it's not the best year overall when it comes to
1: movies. No. But I, I want to think so now, because I mean, it was pretty much the year of like uh, pure 90s cheese. I mean, you said yeah. Men in Black, and yeah, there's a lot of goofy stuff in that. I mean, have you seen how bad the CGI has aged over the years? <laughs> yeah, well, not to mention the fact that just like just the overall goofiness,
0: If you just want to talk about it from a superhero standpoint. It's like yeah. Batman
1: and Robin spawn and
0: steal all that year. I'm not yeah. proud to say the least. I'm not proud. But what's interesting is that the other thing too is that like outside of Hercules, like there aren't that many like animated movies that are talked about like cuz that was the whole thing with the 90s, right? Is the 90s you had like the one big Disney animated movie a year. And it's yeah. not like now where it's like there's like 3 to 4 animated movies made a year now. There wasn't a whole lot of diversity. And Studio Ghibli obviously was still like kind of on the up and up you know like they had a pretty big commercial success with nine, My Neighbor Totoro but then this movie comes out in Japan and I don't and and literally no joke this movie was the highest grossing movie in Japan when oh, it was yeah, yeah when it was released it began, became the highest grossing film in Japan when it was released in 97 it held the domestic it held Japan's box office record for domestic films at least until Spirited Away was released and so, before we even get into the actual movie itself, I feel
1: like that spells out a lot already. Oh, you're telling me? I mean, um, if you look back on a movie like uh, Prin- Prin- Princess Mononoke and some and the animation in particular, like that that can rival Disney if you ask me. I mean, oh, someone absolutely look into it. And just the other day, I was watching um, the Seven Deadly Sins. If you've heard of that, I anime. have. And uh, basically, Miyazaki, the sort of director. Uh, if you watch, if you watch scenes in Seven Deadly Sins, you'll see like a whole room full of people, right? And you'll only see like the first two people, like the main characters having a conversation. They're the only ones that are moving. But if you look at this film, there's a whole room full of people, and it's like Miyazaki decided to animate every single character, even if it's just the slightest bit of movement which makes it more realistic if you ask me.
0: Before we even get into the actual plot, just again, so like literally the thing that I wrote first when I wrote my review for this movie when I finished yesterday, there's a lot that's involved. Like Miyazaki does not go the the cheap route when it comes to animation at all. I think it's safe to say, but it's also, like I said, it's a thing where obviously a lot of animation has always been regarded as like a kid's medium or forum per se, but obviously with his movies, he uses them to get across a lot of very, very mature themes. And the thing that I love is that in every frame of animation in all of the three of his movies that I've seen so far, because this is the third one that I've seen after Spirited Away and The Wind Rises. There is not a single minute where there is not some motion of activity, some little small mm. detail, even in a scene where it's literally, like you said, just people sitting around talking or people just moving in a town square. There is detail put into like every single frame and it's uncanny to witness. And
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I mean, uh, just watching it the other day, I mean, it's my first time watching it as well. Really? See? Yeah, well, yeah. see that's right, interesting because right. I feel like you would have watched it, you know, you'd be the studio Ghibli guy and all. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. Um, I don't know, I just never got around to it eventually. And I thought, you know what? Watching it just the other day, it's already a contender for probably the best animated film that I've ever seen in my entire life. I up mean there. Spirited Away was up there. But after seeing this and understanding what sort of you know, director Miyazaki is, well, I mean, while doing the podcast with you and Chris the other week. Other months, sorry. Yeah. Learned, no, trust I me, time has, yeah. become, time has become non-existent in today's day and age. Your excuse oh, for that. Really has, yeah. So, um, yeah, just I learned so much just from listening to you two talk, and I understand the deep messages that Miyazaki goes for now. And I noticed three extremely big ones in here. If you want to hear them, oh, absolutely, please do. Okay. So the first one I noticed is humans will pretty much kill anything that they don't feel, that, that that they don't understand or if they feel threatened by it pretty par for the course that's also been yeah. explored a lot obviously in American films yeah so obviously you've got um Ash Tucker I think his name is yes he's the one caught in the crossfire of it all he's like okay we're not all so different which is a really powerful message to go off of as well and the second one I noticed was what happens if nature fights humanity back which I think is probably the biggest one he was going for yes and the third one animal cruelty yes absolutely a lot of it was all mashed together beautifully and I just picked up on it a lot quicker than I thought it would.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Again, it's like once you see one, it's like... The thing that I love too is that he doesn't... He's not overly complex about it and it never feels like he's talking down to you with his messages, which I feel like is something that is a trap that he could easily fall into, but he never does. So like, just to basically break down the premise of this, the film follows the main, our main character, Ashitaka, who in the opening scene saves his village from a rampaging boar that's possessed by this demon spirit. Um, but as a result, he's touched by it in the process, he's cursed. And now he has to go on this journey in order to find a way to lift the curse and ends up stumbling into this feud that's going on between this human village. Um, the Ironworks, run by this, um, what do you even call her? Like, uh, I guess like the lady of the village, like the ruler of the village, Lady Eboshi, who is in the yeah. process fighting off samurai from the evil emperor of Japan, who kind of really isn't even a character. He's kind of just like Anslayer offscreen forces and the forces of the force, that being the multiple god animals that live in the forest you know you have the wolf tribe and the princess mononoke who the odd thing is that like even though she's referred to as princess mononoke it's not her actual name the character's name is san and also the boar tribe as well that resides in that forest and he kind of you kind of find him he finds kind of finds himself caught in like this really interesting struggle between them that as you pointed out kind of touches and alludes to all those different messages so like I said, real quick, before you get into it, because I'm, I'm really glad that you brought those messages up, because again, yeah. as I said, Miyazaki is a guy, he never makes a movie unless he is making it for a reason. And a couple, on our last episode with Spirited Away, I dropped a couple of... um a couple of Miyazaki quotes that he said when he was making this movie. So as you said, the central theme was environment, which was a big thing that he was trying to focus on. And the interesting thing is that the uh, critics, Michelle J. Smith and Elizabeth Parsons said that the film makes heroes of outsiders and all identity, political, politics. Yeah, politics categories I can read <laughs> and blurs the stereotypes that usually define such characters, you know, such as in the case of the dear God's destruction of the force. And that's something that I found really interesting because I'm really glad that you brought up the idea of humans and... Um, killing everything that they touch. Because what I found yeah. interesting about this movie that was kind of different from a few of these movies before, because like I said, it's a theme that's been tackled in a lot of American movies beforehand. You know, the idea of humans kind of being this inherent enemy to nature and constantly trying to conquer what it is that they don't understand. And as a result, like you kind of see them getting screwed over. But the thing that I've noticed is that, again, in a lot of those movies, it's usually always one-sided and nature is kind of like always just like an innocent bystander you know and as a result yeah. it's always the emphasis is put on the humans but what i like that this movie did a little bit differently is this movie showed that wasn't really the case like yeah, near the end the humans were like getting a little bit prideful and a little bit big for the bridges but for the most part they were really just conquering the forest so that they could like continue to expand and like protect what it is that they had because the ironworks was established as like one of the main strongholds that was resisting like the emperor you know the evil emperor's forces as he was like marching over the land and also it showed that like the forest gods they weren't all like fun and games either like they're all kind of about survival and they would obviously defend what was theirs but i kind of liked how there was like moral gray on both sides that's not something something that i usually see in these
1: types of stories yeah that's what i was thinking as well because there's kind of like a boundary between humans are really shitty people yes maybe they're not so bad at the same time and it goes for the animals as well and the fact that these animals are more are more human than animals they've evolved over the years I mean, a human would literally look at something like that in real life and think, oh, okay, that scares the shit out of me. I'm going to go kill it to, to protect what's mine. And the animals are just thinking the same. So really, yeah, as you said, there's a boundary between the two of them and no one's really the villain here. If you really, if you if you really think about it, which yeah, is, which is fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like the whole thing is that obviously the Lady Eboshi character, she is very clearly the antagonist. But like when you meet yeah. her, you're like she's actually she's kind of a badass, you know? She's leading like this <laughs> rebel force. You see them, they're fending off these wolves that are attacking them. She's like instigating. She's like created like this whole new type of like weaponry system that she's included into the village that is like giving them like a fighting chance to look like, with the muskets and everything. And she, just her character in general, like she's a total badass. So she's got total control over everyone, but she's not like super fascist she's like kind of relaxed she's got a personality but she also knows to throw down and also kind of love how like just like you've got like the ancillary like again the side characters with how much detail Miyazaki puts in them like all the women of the village and how kind of like they've like kind of like got like a little bit of um of an ego now because like they're led by a woman i actually found that really fascinating the fact that you could have all that detail in this movie and they never once draw attention to it i really really appreciated that and it really kind of killed me when you saw aboshi like kind of giving way to those spies at the end and saying oh we got to kill the deer god you know we got to prove ourselves and i'm like no don't do that you're such a compelling character i like you why and i really like that other thing too is how i like how that factored into like um i gotta make sure i pronounce this right because it is i i Um, Ashitaka, that's right. Ashitaka's struggle is... I like how... I I, I like how every person that met Ashitaka, they just kind of respected him, even if he wasn't necessarily on their side. Like, as soon as he came back to the villagers at the end, in order to try and, like, save the day and everything, like, all the villagers were just, like, automatically for him, even though, like, the spies didn't necessarily like him. Mm -hmm. Literally to the point where the villagers ended up ganging up on the spies and ended up, like, helping him free the one wolf so that they could go and find Lady Eboshi before she killed the deer god. Now... Uh besides obviously the incredible statements on nature and obviously it being unlike uh you know most types of movies like this obviously with the whole nature struggle another big thing that i noticed is that obviously it's kind of a possible to talk about any movie that's made in Japan without referencing, of course, the great Akira Kurosawa. I don't remember if I mentioned him specifically on the last episode that we had, but I don't
1: remember, but yeah, go uh, go ahead.
0: But what I found really interesting is that again, so far, the thing that I've liked about each of Miyazaki's movies that I've seen so far is that each one of them are different. You know, wind rises is kind of a traditional biopic with a little bit of surrealism in it. Spirited away is an eighties dark fantasy, but this movie to me was like probably, I, I don't know if this was Miyazaki's intention or if it was just like a subconscious choice, or like he was just doing it, it just happened to turn out this way. This was the most I found him kind of emulating. That's the word I'm going to use here, Kurosawa, because like the wide sweeping landscapes, the kind of kind of traditional hero struggle, you know, almost like the Western esque backdrop, you know, of like this small village having to fend off this larger force that comes right out of Magnificent Seven, you know. So I just was wondering, like, if you kind of got that sense the way that I did.
1: Yeah, I did actually, and um. Another, uh, another thing it kind of reminds me of as well. Okay, the movie Parker Hunters. This is back onto the D, uh, subject of Disney, right? Basically, uh, Park Parker Hunters is about the British who want to take over the Native Americans' land, and that this movie kind of reminded me of that as well. Yeah, it's like these humans want to take over, you know, you know, the animals' land because it's all landscape, and people will just destroy landscape to build whatever the hell they want. And I just got Parker Hunter's vibes from it. It was really interesting. Yeah,
0: definitely. But I think the th- I think the reason why I go with Kurosawa specifically, like I've seen a couple of movies. I've seen Rashomon, and I've seen Throne of Blood. I think those are the only two because I still somehow haven't seen Seven Samurai. But again, like just the idea of like Kurosawa was obviously a guy that like really liked to go for like those big wide nature shots, you know, and yeah. the, the, the stories themselves were all like kind of weirdly enough, like traditional American Western, because that was the whole thing about Kurosawa. Kurosawa loved Westerns, and so he just basically like remade them as Japanese epics. And then the irony of that is that all the American directors that would come out like the 60s and 70s would like unintentionally emulate Kurosawa style. So you kind of saw this like weird circular motion happening throughout as it like bounced back and forth. <laughs> (laughs) But, you know, specifically, obviously, with Throne of Blood um, being one of the biggest influences for George Lucas with Star Wars. And what I found really interesting is, again, like the wide landscape shots, like just how every frame of how it's animated is just so pristine, like even with like the wind wisping over the grass. Again, it's like Mm -hmm. I have to tell myself that I'm watching an animated movie. That's how in-depth and detailed it gets. But specifically with kurosawa kurosawa again with his kind of western take he always wants to go for the underdog i like how ashitaka again is an underdog really he's a guy who uh started out weird enough um on a quest kind of just for himself he just wants to cure himself right of this curse Mm -hmm. that he got defending his village you know a very selfless act you know he's introduces like a pretty standard you know just kind of everyday man and then as he goes and he finds himself and he finds that he ends up becoming part of something much bigger than himself. I just found that really interesting. But also how the struggle that he goes through in a weird way almost gets away from him. Because the thing is that we never see him go back to his village. We never see him return to his point of origin. And then when he's finished, he doesn't obviously get the girl at all. Kasan, obviously the whole thing that she says is that she's like, yeah, um, you still... Ended up helping the humans in a way, and yeah. so screw you. I'm staying in the forest. He's like, "All right, I guess I'll stay in the Ironworks, and I guess we can meet
1: up, do that whole yeah. once a year thing that happens." So I kind of just found that really interesting. Now I suppose again, if you think about it, the the fact that it's so realistic in real life, the guy doesn't always get the girl. If you know what I mean, yeah, like uh, sometimes. Sometimes you don't see things unfold, but I do get what you're saying. Like he never went back to his village in the end. Uh, you don't right. get to see uh, that bit unfold. Doesn't get to see his old friends again. Like, hey, look, I'm cured now.
0: Yeah, no, it's not that type of a story. But again, like, how it's funny because I feel like in a more traditional narrative, that would become a lo- that that would that would probably like annoy some people. But for this narrative, it just it works completely because again, the, the story ultimately grows larger than the character itself, and I don't think it's something that's something that you really see. In a lot of Western media, you know, kind of the idea always is that it starts with a traditional character. The world is already set up and it's kind of, usually when it's done right, they'll usually yeah. kind of interact until the main character has going through some sort of arc. And then the world, for the most part, might change. It might not. But here it's like, no, it's almost that like the character becomes involved in this entirely new world. And then as a result, once it influences him. He he does influence it, and he does influence it back. It's like a real give and take. It's really interesting. It's one of the things that I absolutely loved about the Last Airbender. You know, now the other theme, obviously, that we talked about is you know the moral ambigu- ambiguous conflict between you know mankind's growth and development, nature's need for preservation, mm-hmm. and how we really see that like. At, come to odds in this and we don't really know if we could pick a side because again the problem is that mm. for the most amount of times again you get like something like a fern gully where the humans are so obviously the antagonists that it's like you don't even see them for most time and then most of the time they're just like dumb humans who are being manipulated by the chaos spirit you know voiced gleefully by tim curry but here it's like you see the humans and like they feel mostly just like you know real people just peasants that's the whole thing because that's the whole thing about the ironworks is they are established as a village that is specifically for outsiders. Like, they take in all the outsiders who can't fit in, you know, like, like that's the the thing. They establish that most of the women there are former prostitutes, which, again, the (laughs) fact that that's in an animated movie is kind of awesome, you know? And, like, you get, like, all these kind of, like, injured men, all these people who just, like, want, like, some form of a new life outside of, like, the current regime, you know? So you do end up rooting for these guys, even though, again, they are the evil humans that are uprooting, like, the forest spirits.
1: Yeah, so you are kind of, like toss and turn between who exactly do you root for? Like, do I follow these humans who aren't all that bad? I just want to make a life for themselves. Or do, or do I, have, or, do, or do I side with these animals who are clearly getting like their home teared down? Right. What have like bad, bad and good mountains on both sides. Right. And yeah. And specifically, nice, with the yeah but specifically with the animals too like i like i just i mean
0: you want to talk about some great designs i mean again we we talked back and forth about the animation but like specifically like i love how like you to get the different creatures of the woods and you know like how they kind of have their own hierarchy that they've evolved you know obviously with the wolves with the hunters you know but and the boars they're primarily the herbivores you know that's kind of like why to me it's like really depressing when you see that they're the primary fighting force and that they just get blown to smithereens when they fight it kind oh of yeah like, you, you it, yeah it's, it's it's one of those situations where you kind of see it's like you see the 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 kind of the renegade rebel force and you're rooting for them to win because they're the underdog but then you see what they're up against and you kind of just
1: feel bad for them because you're like oh they're not winning not at all yeah and, should, humans bring up the big guns and that's it the balls yeah, are screaming pretty much and then you
0: know you get the apes that are kind of like hanging over everything they're kind of like the scavengers just like the commentators they don't really want to get involved in everything but you know, obviously, the whole thing about movies is that there's a lot of symbolism involved. There's a lot of metaphors involved. And I was kind of wondering, like, what you thought, what you think, like, the what I thought actually an interesting kind of metaphor involved with the wolves was. It's something that I didn't kind of realize at first, but as I was watching the movie more, I kind of saw this, where the three wolves, I believe they established, are the last of the wolf tribe because we don't see any yeah. other wolves in the movie. And the, though it's never mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, I'm pretty sure that like they are the last of their kind, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was no other walls in the entire film, uh, of what I know anyway, and I would have read up a it. There's nothing that mentions anymore, so I'm, I think you're right, just the three of them.
0: Right, so what was interesting to me, and I was wondering if, again, because usually you see American films usually pull out influences from foreign films. You know, very rarely do we see foreign films pull from American films, but what I my first thought that I went to, and it's funny because I'm really not the biggest fan of this movie, but I thought that this stance hmm. really stood out to me the most is The Last of the Mohicans. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't now. Okay, so it's a Michael Mann film again. Michael Mann had one of the most legendary runs in the '90s ever. He had Last of the Mohicans in '92, Heat in '95, um, The Insider in '99, and one other in '97 that I'm totally forgetting, and I'm gonna—it's gonna kill me when I, when I actually remember what it is. But um, yeah, Michael Mann, really really great '90s director. And Last of the Mohicans is interesting because it's based on a book where. It's, it's set during the American Revolution, and the last three of this one Native American tribe have to protect these, um, what's it called? Uh, you know, these white colonists from a rival Native American tribe that wants to see them dead. But the whole thing about it is that it's only technically two of them that are you know, in this Mohican tribe. The one of them is actually played by Daniel Day-Lewis. He's the main character of them. And he's actually adopted because he was adopted by them when he was a baby. But they are now like the last of their kind, you know? And at the end of the movie, you see the one of them, which is actually the son, you know, it's it's three of them. You know, it's a dad. And then you have his biological son. They're the last of the Mohicans. And then you have Daniel Day-Lewis, who's the adopted one. And at the end, you see the son actually die. And so by that time, the dad is now the official last of the Mohicans. And I found that really as kind of like a weird... Interesting comparison slash metaphor here, where the thing with the wolves is that I kind of find this like really interesting relationship that this girl has formed because supposedly, again, you know, you have to assume it based on what's presented to you, but these three wolves are the last of their kind. And when the lead, the mother wolf, dies, when you know the lead bore, um Okatu, right? That's its name, Okatu, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh becomes consumed by a demon and it kind of sacrifices itself knowing that it's like on the last of its legs, you know, in order to try and save San when she becomes consumed by the demon and everything. And I found something like really interesting and cathartic how, like when you see the two wolves with them, they're truly the last of their kind and i'm like oh wow and that's before we even get into the finale with the deer god and everything and i wonder and obviously what that symbolizes because that's obviously just like nature coming back to bite humanity in its ass (laughs) but i was wondering if you kind of like what kind of like metaphors and allusions you picked up on there as far as like you know like what you know when should we become aware like when does the line cross obviously between like um what's called industrialism versus preserving what should be preserved, you know, because obviously mm. most of the time we assume it's, we just keep barreling forward, full steam ahead with no repercussion of the actions, but we don't realize that, Oh, we're kind of destroying these sacred things that yeah. if we're not careful, we'll never come back, you know? And most people kind of take that for granted, especially here in America. Like here in America, like we don't care,
1: you know? Oh, I think it's just about uh, just as bad over here in the UK. Um, the one thing I did now is actually, the fact that there's only these these three walls, do you think that the three walls maybe adopted Princess Mononoke as, as as their own and claimed her to be the daughter? Right. And generally because there was like three of them and they were like, okay, you know, just something like that. I could definitely see it as a
0: situation. And again, I don't remember if they actually said this again. It was, it was a long movie to say the least, but I found it really interesting. I'm wondering if it was a situation where they ended up like killing her family And then she was like, you know, like Uh, the one survivor, like almost like, you know, like almost like a Romulus slash not Romulus and Remus, but like what's the Roman legend with the wolves that trained um that trained romulus and remus kind of like that situation where it's you know like the like the wolves they always see the helpless kid and the whole thing is that they give the kid a chance because you know it's just a helpless kid and rather than eat it they see if it can grow up enough to defend itself and i'm wondering if that was a situation you know because again for a primarily eastern themed movie there is a lot of western themes in here that i found really interesting and as far as let's see and as far as, like, you know, like, the, f- the fight between the humans and animals, as far as, like, you know, the, the new emerging order, I kind of found that, like, the wolves, in addition to that, almost, like, kind of existed on the periphery, and specifically the lead wolf, let me check her name right here, because, again, there's uh, so yeah, much detail right in here it's um moro yeah moro the yeah. lead wolf moro it was almost like she was kind of aware i also kind of found it kind of really interesting how even though it's supposed to be a female it's clearly voiced by a guy i just found that really funny i loved yeah. how kind of they understood that they were like on their last legs and that they were kind of like the last of its kind. You know, I actually found that really interesting, like this really subliminal metaphor of how like, and um, what I found to be the prime difference between the wolves and the boars, because the boars were plentiful. So when they just full-on charge into battle, they just, even though they knew they were marching towards certain defeat, they were like, it, it, it was like blinders on, you know? It's like, screw it, there's plenty of us. There's no way they could possibly defeat all of us. And then they did, but the wolves almost had like this, superior understanding of that. They're like, okay, there's much less of us. We'll fight when we have to, but if we don't have to, we're not going to, you know? And Morrow, I specifically had that. So I found that like, that was another really interesting thing. It's like, oh, wow, that almost like shows the different levels of nature, you know, specifically between herbivores and carnivores, you know, it's like herbivores, there's so many of them that even though, you know, they run and scared, and even though the carnivores are technically dominant to them, there is still more of them. That's why the carnivores always have to be smarter because if they're not careful, again, it's like the whole lion versus elephant thing you know it's like a lion goes after yeah. a, a gazelle. that's one thing but a lion is smart enough to not go after an elephant because otherwise it's going to get stomped on you know yeah, so I, mean, I just
1: so i found that really interesting too there yeah i mean obviously bringing back to what you just said there a lion if it's going to take down an elephant it's going to need multiple allies to help uh, t- to help it out but a simple gazelle or something it can just take it down on its own right
0: But the whole thing with nature too is that obviously like the the fun comes from the hunt, you know, and that's the one thing that these wolves clearly do establish is even though they are sentient and even though they do communicate, they are still animals and they will still bite and eat and kill you you know as they say multiple times they're like you know they're like go home boy or else we're gonna kill you and eat you you know and I yeah, can't yeah, tell it yeah. it's like I can't tell if they're joking in that scene but I also don't want to know if they're joking because they probably will and that's another thing too that I wanted to get to is that again for an animated movie this movie's friggin violent like yeah. violent. You, you, see, you see like limbs getting chopped off you see heads getting blown up you see piles and piles of carcasses like it. it, it I have to assume that this was played for comedic effect, but you literally see Ashitaka like fire off multiple arrows and just knock
1: people's heads clean off. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> one of, uh, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> for that scene. I just, I just could not stop laughing. I don't know if it was yeah. some some kind of serious, epic, uh, dramatic scene, but I decapitate the guy's head. I just, it, I just lost it. It kind of does take you out of the scene just a little bit, but I yeah, did. Like every
0: time I saw that, I'm like, oh wow, this movie's not messing around. And what's funny is that for this, for what I was, what I was watching this. Movie the second day. I was watching a couple scenes with with my niece who's two, and again, she can usually only focus for well, that's the thing. See, it's funny again, this is how I'm not irresponsible. I'm gonna come around on that. Is that she's two, so she can usually only focus for like 10 minutes at a time and then just wanders off and does something else. But I was very carefully making sure I'm like, okay, no limb decapitation or anything in these (laughs) scenes. Thank god, it was almost all primarily dialogue scenes, and ironically enough, after she left. That's what all the violence picked up again near the third act. I'm like, phew! Dodged a little bullet, little, little bullet there. there. Yeah, dodged a bullet there. I mean, because you have kids, right? It's it, it's interesting I too because thing, yeah, because yeah, the whole thing, right, is that obviously it, it. Everyone always assumes that like you know animation it's primarily a kids media, but like I've seen my fair share of animated movies. And I'm like, yeah, I would never show this to a kid. You know, like. I'll go the, now. The 80s dark movies like the Don Bluth movies, those are kind of interesting because even though those have some very like darker overtones of shadows, the subject matter is still for the most part primarily kiddie fair. You know, like Land Before Time, that movie is very dark in look, but it doesn't like have anything that's inherently like bad for a kid. It might be like slightly scary when you're younger. Like I remember the scene where they were all like covered in that goo was kind of scary, but that was about Mm -hmm. it, you know, but this movie, it's like whoa like i feel like kids would have to be like a certain level of maturity in order to appreciate this and they wouldn't
1: just be able to like watch this you know? i mean i don't know it's it's weird i'm kind of like in this 50 50 spot what do you think i don't know really because um one question i do have for you actually okay you know the f- uh, you know the film Watership ship down yes that's basically one of the most violent things i've ever seen in animation right had, like a, um, a universal rating yeah this one as far as i'm concerned has a pg rating would you would you just have that's suitable for kids? It's see, That's funny
0: that you bring that up because that goes back to the whole thing in the 80s, right? Because the 80s was the decade that really solidified that because the whole thing is, I think that for the long, I don't remember for the longest time, I think the whole thing is, again, back in the day, I think it was just PG and X, right? I think the whole right. thing is that the R rating didn't come around until, uh, I don't remember what the film was that determined the R rating, but the whole thing, right, mm. is that it was just R and PG for the longest time. Like you had a movie like Spaceballs, rated PG you know but the whole thing was that when Raiders of the Lost Ark and Scarface came out those movies kind of differentiated where it's like oh okay there should be a little bit more because again the whole thing is that even though I guarantee you nobody complained about this the whole face melting scene at the end like the whole MPAA thing we're like mm. okay this is clearly is not PG you know but it's interesting because like I have seen animated and more like kitty fair movies that are rated PG-13 but it's really interesting because I feel like each film is a unique case right and the funny thing is that even though there is violent and mature subject matter that comes into this movie I don't think that I would be too uncomfortable showing this to somebody like I know a couple of 12 and 13 year olds who would probably love something like this you know so I I do think that should. Should be, but at the same time, I don't. So I'm kind of back and forth there. I'm kind of 50-50 there as far as that goes, you know? Because again, each case is really subjective and the problem is that even though... I think the thing that it comes down to is that even though there is violence in this movie, it's not violence for the sake of violence. It's violence to show that this was the time period that it took place during. Again, like most Kurosawa movies, it takes place during the feudal Japan era. And again, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of samurai riding around. There was a lot of village conquering. You know, bigger tribes... Taking over smaller villages. There was a lot of just like mm. very blatant violence, you know, a lot of, a um, lot of, a lot of, a lot of Bushido, a lot of, um, uh, seppuku, you know, a lot, a lot of that yeah. kind of stuff. And the, the movie didn't shy away from it. And again, for an animated movie, I give mm. this a lot of props. And in a way, I think this is actually why I like this movie more than spirited away because spirited away mm. as crazy and as surreal as that movie got, it still was a kid's movie, you know, like Spirited Away never lost sight of what it was, which was a kid's movie. But this movie, to me, I don't know if it's just like the age where I'm at right now. Like, I feel like I feel like if I watched the two movies when I was a lot younger, I would have liked Spirited Away more. But because I watched this movie now, like Spirited Away, I watched and I was like, OK, this is fun, you know, because I, like I said, the 80s dark fantasy genre uh, was kind of hit or miss for me but this movie i watched so i was like whoa Specifically when they got to that last act when the deer god dies and it turns into that giant blob thing and just starts taking like <laughs> destroying everything i'm like holy shit and like when they're racing to find the thing's head i'm like wow i'm on the edge of my seat right now more so than i have been for like most movies i've seen recently
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, uh, it's like at that point i had no idea what was going on i mean i saw this huge blob thing and i thought hang on this is just as bizarre as spirited away in some way right
0: but in a different way, too, yeah.
1: because like that to me was the moment where
0: it's like, OK, this is your what's it called this is your kind of nature finally taking revenge. Right. Because that's the whole thing is that even though you would seen the fight between humans and nature for a majority of it, you didn't see nature like fully taking swing. You know, that, that's the whole thing. Right. With Jurassic Park is that Jurassic Park. You know, and that's the whole thing of what shows what happens when mankind attempts to meddle in nature and then nature bites back, you know, and the whole thing is with that movie is that movie kind of again, the difference with that movie and this movie is that movie makes it the midpoint of the movie, you know, like the full moment, the oh shit moment when they realize that everything's screwed is that T-Rex moment, you know, well, yeah, this right movie. Yeah, this movie kind of saves its cards for the end because for the majority of the movie, humans are winning, for better or for worse. You know, like oh, yeah. the, you know, first with, right from the opening shot with um, Ashitaka killing the one demon boar that infects him at first, and then, uh, what's it called, when he uh, brokers the pizza, you know, when San infiltrates the village order to try and kill Lady Eboshi, and then he yeah. ends up bringing her out to the wolves, and then when, um, what's it called, and then obviously when the boars attack and everything, like, the humans are winning, and they... Mess the, and they mess the animals up pretty badly, but it's not until Aboshi makes the one fatal mistake and kills the deer god right when it's in his weird rejuvenation stage, and that's the whole thing. Is that the deer god is both the harbinger of life and death, and I find it funny that even though the animals are technically gods too, they don't really understand that. Like the boars go to. Like when Okotu Okatu is like very, very grievously injured right before it becomes a demon and is going towards the deer god with the hope that it'll resurrect his race, even though he's like so clearly delirious that it's like, dude, you clearly don't understand that that's not how this works. And then the deer god comes and it almost like puts it out of his mercy, which is just like such a bleak scene in context, but it's still so beautiful to watch because it's so beautifully animated. And then when it's like extending its neck upwards and Boshi shoots it, And I'm kind of hoping it's like, yes, she's missed. And then the head, and then like the head explodes. And you see the bubble come out. I'm like, oh,
1: no. I was hoping. I was hoping. (sighs) Yeah, it's like you're actually rooting for the blob at this point. You actually want it to stop all these people. Kind of, like, but, yeah. though, but
0: again, it's with continuing with this movie's moral areas where it's like, in theory, you're hoping you're like, yes, come on, nature, come out and fuck off, fuck over all these humans. But then you see what the blob actually does. And the blob is, again, it, at that point, it's just like, it's the whole thing of, right, like without consciousness, just pure unmoving force, which is that it's almost like the Terminator in a sense, you know? It doesn't really have thought or feeling, it doesn't care about anything, it's no longer. A force of benevolence, it's just a force of destruction. You know, it's kind of like the opposite side of that coin. And when you see it moving out and just destroying and consuming everything, you know, we're talking the forest, the humans, everything. Like everyone's running away from it. You know, it's almost kind of like in a weird way, kind of like once And again, this is a really bad movie, but bear with me because I feel like this example does work. Um, What's it called? Once Phoenix is officially unleashed at the end of Dark Phoenix. uh, Not Dark Phoenix, not that one. uh, X-Men The Last Stand. And she's just destroying everything in her path. Humans, mutants, it doesn't matter. you know. And the sad part is that, again, you see the residents of the Ironworks. And again, it's not Eboshi or the spies or any of the people that directly attacked it. It's just like the regular people who were just defending Mm -hmm. themselves and just want a place to live. And you see all of them are about to get utterly demolished and you realize yeah. oh wait oh there are no good or bad guys here like that stuff i'm like wow that's a lot of stuff right there
1: yeah it's pretty much you know demolish whatever's in your way at that point it's like you know, throughout the entire film as, um, as you said before the uh, the humans are winning they're using all these different guns that they've invented all these bombs in their arsenal and then at the end, Nature's like, you know what? Fuck it. I've got a much bigger weapon in my arsenal. Yeah. And and, and here it is, you're all screwed now.
0: Especially again, it's like once it's 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 almost like once they remove the head, it's like the symbolic, it's like symbolically, it's like, okay, I you've removed like the filter. Now you just like
1: yeah, you're utter utter destruction.
0: Yeah. It's like you just destroyed the only thing that was holding back the thing that would literally, you know, destroy you completely, you know? And I don't know, like what like I don't know, maybe this is just because like I've I've seen this before, so this might be me nitpicking, but what is it with them using black ooze to symbolize like <laughs> death and destruction? Cause I'm like, did because I'm like, did, did you kind of rip that off from Ferngully? Because Ferngully did the exact hmm. same thing with Hexis, you know, like the like the like the evil like forest eater demon. You know, yeah. like, I, I like this movie a
1: lot more than Ferngully, but like it's kind of hard to miss the similarities there as far as that goes. I know, since I've never seen that film, um, the only thing which I was picturing throughout the entire thing was like like it was, it was it was like a Venom symbiote for some reason. That's what was running through my head. Kind of, I yeah, worth Yeah, yeah, the, yeah but we're a about, anyway, so yeah, the thing about the Venom symbiote is that it's
0: kind of just like it. It just wants a host. It's it, it's just like the Venom symbiote know. is just the Venom symbiote is like a desperate is like a desperate person. It just wants some <laughs> a, a, looking for a relationship. It just wants somebody else to latch on to. This is just like oh man, I'm trying to think of like a good thing to compare it to just like that thing just like destroys everything regardless of what's in its path i guess i guess this is kind of like i kind of guess like it's that unstoppable force metaphor that the joker uses in the dark knight that's probably because that's like the only thing that i could think of as far as that goes and i found that and i found that really interesting because again it continues with miyazaki's overall exploration of kind of using these very heightened fantastical ideas but keeping them on a very grounded level it's what he did so well with Spirited Away it didn't happen as much in The Wind Rises because The Wind Rises was for the most part like a straight biopic it just had like a few surrealism edges like with Mm -hmm. the dreams and stuff but again I'm going to be very interested to see how that continues throughout the rest of his filmography you know with films obviously like I want to hit Howl's Moving Castle I know Grave of the Fireflies and Kiki's Delivery Service are also big ones are there other ones that you could think of off the top of your head that you know of i i have no idea now like my mind's gone a bit blank yeah it's kind of hard but um there's a few other themes that i just want to talk about oh so this is interesting so obviously the theme of duality being a pretty pretty prevalent theme you know the duality and then obviously um what's called the difference between individualism and social conformity those are two huge things you know specifically you see that easily with san and aboshi you know the whole thing is san is very very individualistic to the point where she often lets like you know, like rational-minded thought, like rationality just go out the window and are just her sort of blind vendetta against eboshi, who she clearly doesn't realize, just like has this responsibility to look after the people in her town. But also the idea of duality where you have this aboshi character where again, to me, part of the charm of her is that even though what's it called, even though she what she's doing is wrong, in a way she kind of doesn't really understand in a way what just the amount of harm that she is causing to this because again her only focus is the residents of her village you know and i found that really fascinating again it's what makes to me aboshi like just a really fascinating character and not just like a generic antagonist you know if anything it kind of made me even more sad when she took the shot at the deer god i'm like no don't you're (laughs) you're so
1: much better than this aboshi you're so much better than this yeah, you just want one, one, one redeeming quality. And when she decapitates the spirit god's head, it's like, nah, that's out, that's out the window. But yeah. a question I do have for you as well: um, of what we talked about through this, throughout this entire thing, like who do who do you root for—the humans or the animals? Oh, do, you man. That, do you think that the different that the spirit of the forest symbolizes that both of them are not very different? Because if you look at the spirit's face, it's kind of like a human face with like a deer sort of body. So I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that oh, one.
0: Oh, that's a good pull. That's a good pull because oh my god, I wasn't even thinking about that, too. That's a crazy thing because literally, you know what <laughs> it's funny? Oh my! I should have known that too, because the whole thing with me when I saw that, I was was like, "What is up with that deer's face?" But I thought it was interesting too. And I don't know if you picked up on this, like when you had like the regular, like the close-ups of the deer's face, like looking at it like this, like symmetrically head-on, it looked kind of flat. But then when you saw the shot from the side, it kind of looked more extended and animalistic. And that was definitely an intentional choice, like kind of showing the different size between humans and animals, and like showing that you know they're not that different. But that's really, really interesting that you pointed that out because. Yeah, is the answer to that question. Like, it's yeah. the whole it's the whole underlying theme of the movie is the idea that because humans, that, that's the whole thing that we've talked about a lot, is that because humans are not actually that different from animals, the whole thing is that like they're just kind of slightly more elevated because they've reached this level of cognitive thinking that animals just didn't, you know, just based on evolution, you know, but that's so interesting and fascinating that you bring that up. Wow like i feel like joe rogan right now just no response. (laughs) just like wow you hit the nail on the freaking head right there i think you just solved like the entire theme of the movie oh you reckon (laughs) Uh, yeah i do reckon that is a man points for that one yeah definitely um i really don't know what else we could talk about as far as that like we pretty much did we pretty much picked this picked this to death but jesus like oh man what a movie what a, yeah, that but- that is all that I have to say. Like I'm really glad that you pointed out the idea of this being like just an animated movie that automatically made your favorites. Like, because the whole thing is that I'm still trying to figure out my top 20 movies of all time, and Toy Story oh, and Lion I mean, King yeah. were the old yeah. T- Toy Story and Lion King were the only two animated movies that I had in there, but. After I saw this movie, first of all, not only is this movie probably going to make my favorite movies of the year that I was born 97. I'm also just so happy that this movie came out in 97. I feel like that's what like gives this mm-hmm. an extra level above it too. But this movie automatically made is making my top 20 and the more I think about it, this, honestly might make my top 10. Like it really might. Like this movie for an animated movie and again, we really have to stop doing that because we have to stop automatically discrediting animated movies as not yeah, like, being the caliber of live action films, because almost every single animated movie that I've seen has been on the caliber of live action films, if not more. And there's a, re- and there's a reason for that. You know, it just, it, it, it has a level of thought and creativity that is put into the stories that I just don't see from live action. And again, may, may, maybe you can help me out with this because this is kind of the last thing that I wanted to get into is, uh-huh why is it that for a medium where you know that your your brain recognizes that it is watching drawings or 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 cg animation or well you know whatever the whatever them animated for you know stop motion is usually easier to get across because at the very least your brain can register that you're watching actual objects moving how is it that they're able to sell stories that are sometimes more legitimately humane than actual like human stories about like real Hmm. human characters, you know, is it the, is it the whole person? Is it the whole personification angle? Is that it? You know, us transcribing human traits to these inhumane
1: objects. I was about to say that. Yeah. Because if you really think about it, someone in a room sat there with a pencil and paper and they're like, okay, if I'm going to make this as real and humane as possible, I've got to put some real work into this. And it's a lot faster and and it's a lot faster just to write a script and get someone just to read it out to you like make, make them wear a costume and stuff but to do that if you want to make it as real and as good as possible you need to put the time and effort into it so yeah I think you're right
0: yeah, just cause I like, I, I'm obviously, again, I'm a huge proponent of animated movies. I found that like, as I've gotten old, again, I'm wearing a freaking Lion King shirt. Ironically enough, I finally oh, actually wore the right yeah. shirt for the right occasion, but I just found that like, the more and more I go back to these animated movies, I just find myself liking them so much more now, you know, just for mm-hmm. the behind the scenes, you know, appreciation that I've garnered from learning about the behind the scenes of the filmmaking process and everything. And it just, makes me have so much more appreciation i'm like wow like i I have to imagine that like the amount in the amount of time that it takes to like make just like a regular film it takes like at least double the time for it to make an animated film, you know, with obviously with the story conception, actually getting the script written, then just for like designing the idea of what the world is gonna look like because that has to be designed entirely from scratch, getting the original cells drawn, you know. And then once you add the CG on top of it, because again, this was the latest in the trend of a couple of 90s films that were introducing um additional 3D scopes on top of traditional hand-drawn animation. You know, rescue ironically enough rescue was down under which to me does not get nearly enough credit kind of kicked oh, yeah. off that trend right, right. and you would see that utilized in the rest of the big disney films throughout the 90s but you also saw it used here like there were a couple of shots that were they used um 3d landscaping and it actually provided like a lot of interesting textures too so yeah it's just it's fascinating stuff man it really That's nice is
1: stuff, yeah i mean i think what gets me down about an animation why so many people discredit it as well particularly adults like an adult yeah. will look at a piece of animation and go oh it's cartoon it's for kids i'm not going to R- bother yeah. with it." and i think that's a shame because since i've gotten into anime since the first time i popped death note on to the, uh, to the point i'm at now i've watched a shit ton of anime now and i love it i mean i've fallen I've, I've fallen in love with this jo- with this genre it is oh, it's just so good and if more people just look past the fact that it's just a cartoon character that cartoon character has a real per- uh, a real persona behind them and I think if more people see that, then then the studio could grow even more. Because the whole thing is that with, with, with the idea of seeing a regular
0: person, you know, it's obviously the person has to make you fall in love with the character. But it's already kind of that much easier because at the very least, even if you don't like the person, your brain still registers that it's a real life person. When you're watching an animated character, your brain has to just from like what the brain does in its perception of art and media, your brain has to do double the work just to convince itself that you're watching a real person. And the fact that these characters usually so seamlessly, even though there's usually, you know, human voices coming out of it, you still register that you're watching a hand-drawn or CG animated character on a computer. And the fact that these characters still can appear so humane, you know, and the fact that we can just fall in love with them so much more as a result of it, it's just that there really is a specialty to it. And the fact that animation gets discredited as just for kids to me is just abhorrent. I'm going to use that word abhorrent. Yeah. but uh, Yeah. Yeah. But this has been a great conversation. But uh, so, yeah, just to wrap it up, because we kind of got away from it a little bit. Yeah, Princess Mononoke is an absolutely perfect film. To quote myself in my review that I wrote for it last night, uh, the Miyazaki streak of perfection continues. With The Wind Rises, Miyazaki told a perfect animated biopic with a dash of surrealism. With Spirited Away, he did his best take on an 80s dark fantasy. And in this film, he does his best take on a Kurosawa film with a fantasy twist. But it is just unbelievable. It's got some of the most jaw-dropping animation I've ever seen. It statements on the plight between humans and nature is actually add something new to the conversation with what I thought was a kind of tired out and oh, it's quite frankly overdone story that really had nothing left to offer and the fact that this actually gave me something new to offer was impressive enough. I love the characters all of the characters too, like every single one. Like I don't think there was a single character in this movie that I didn't like.
1: Yeah, that's Yeah.
0: And just, yeah, this, this is a perfect movie. I'm going to say, yeah, this is an absolutely perfect movie. And, uh, this is five stars for me.
1: Absolutely. And a solid five from me too. Like, awesome. Not awesome, yeah. awesome film. I absolutely loved it, and I'll see myself watching it again and again. And the wind rises is something I've never seen, so I think that's uh, that's up next for me. I'll check it out. Yeah, the wind rises is a good one. I definitely. I'm I'm really glad that I made that my first one overall. You yeah. know, it's again, it's it, it's a,
0: it's a very it's a very quiet film, and again for an animated movie, it is a very very human movie. You know, like like the, that's probably like the first animated movie where like there's no like exaggerated like facial expressions there's sort no of like crazy actions or anything like that where it's like okay they can never get away with that in real life like it feels very very human like i said it's, it's a biopic and it feels more realistic than like most of the actual biopics you know like i i buy the wind rises more than i do something like bohemian rhapsody you know so there's something there as far as that goes but jim bob thanks again for being on again our studio ghibli streak continues as soon no, as we I'm watch kidding. the as soon as we watch the next one, we'll have you back. It's funny because we were originally supposed to have Wonder Woman in this spot. And then, you know, yeah. Wonder Woman got pushed back because, obviously, unfortunately, by the time this episode comes out, I'll just break the news to you now. Dune the uh, is the latest film. Danny Villeneuve's Dune is the latest film to get pushed back. It's been delayed to October oh, no, of 2021 no, no, no. now. Yeah. Yep. So that's the next yeah. one. So that's Dune. That's Dune, Black Widow and uh no time to die that have now all been delayed to next year so that leaves soul and wonder woman as far as like the big animated releases free guy free guy is still sticking to that december release spot but i'm not i'm not confident i'm mm, not confident no. at
1: all as far I'm as not right. all, i'm not holding any hope for it We're, you know we'll see what yeah.
0: happens I mean you, 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 I mean
1: you obviously you as a brit too obviously like with, with the whole bond thing you know that that's got to be a blow right there uh if i'm being honest with you like I'm, uh, i never actually was a huge fan of james bond like i only oh. started watching the daniel craig films if i'm being honest like this oh, year, i,
0: I, I kind of love that too because like mostly i, I think I, I think you're like the first brit that i've met who's like not <laughs> huge into bond i actually kind of love that too we'll have to get yeah. into that later on in a different podcast
1: yeah 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 definitely yeah and uh but yeah so with that being said jim bob where can the good people find you online Okay, guys, so if you want any, like, R-rated content, not in terms of, like, blood and violence, but in terms of, like, the jokes and the gross sort of humor, go to Jim Bob Talks Movies. It's right there. Awesome.
0: I love it. Oh, that's great. Jim Bob, you were a blast. Thanks again for being on. And I am, of course, of course Dom, the movie nerd of Talking TV. Chris, the TV nerd, could unfortunately not be here because we lead busy lives in our real life people. But it's not going to stop us from getting you guys quality content. If you click in the description below, you'll see all of our playlists. You can click the subscribe button. You can click like the like button. You can click the little bell. That way you get notified every time we put up new content. Guys, we've been putting up a lot of content. And even though it's the second half of the year, and even though we're finally getting this goddamn stupid, awful quarantine year over with we'll see what next year brings us but we're still not going to stop giving you guys content because we've got lots of content to give and we're both trying to be the creative as possible we've got content every monday wednesday and friday new podcast episodes are out on wednesdays we've usually got um chris's love chris's lovecraft words chris's lovecraft country recap series still airing on mondays we've got a new episode up um, let's call it that aired last night on Tuesday, and we have two more episodes left of that. We're continuing our Shocktober event. We'll be continuing that this weekend with a uh, viewing of Candyman on David of Flix Talks channels. That's going to be a lot of fun. Keep it, keep tuned to the channel in order to see more updates on that as we go throughout the month of October. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, at TV Again, All the links will be in the description. Follow this man right here because he's awesome and he knows a lot and he's really fun to have around. And of course, people, as always, watch more fucking movies. We out.